Hey y'all, it's Danielle. Today, Tykeen and I are making good on our promise of consistency with a brand new episode, episode 27 of Ain't No Free Lunch. This week, we delve into the details of the Central Park Five case from the late 80s and early 90s, a criminal investigation and trial that absolutely rocked the country. Given 45 screams for due process, we take this trip down memory lane to emphasize that his calls for fair treatment under the law absolutely do not apply to everyone. We also want to quickly apologize for not offering a trigger warning for our last episode and also to offer one for this episode. If discussions of violence and or sexual assault are upsetting for you in any way, we suggest that you simply tune in next week. All right, let's eat. What up, what up? Nothing much. I'm just excited that we're back one week later, like we said that we would be. Hey. This is strange. A true story. Like, I texted Danielle this morning. She was like, what time? And I was thinking to myself, said, yeah, girl, just go ahead and keep sleeping your life away. You'll pay for this later. But, she, but I'm here. So. She's here. She's here. At 7. So we said that. 7.30. 7.30 West Coast time. I just, like, haven't been sleeping right. So I was like, what time? Because if we have to do this in two minutes, nah. But I, you, I can get myself together in 30. Are you living right, though? I'm trying to. Okay. You know, actually, I think today is World Mental Health Day. So. um, I think is it was it? yesterday, I think. Or was that yesterday? Oops. Anyway. So, Take yeah, we now have Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And, uh, you know, how you feel about that? I offer no commentary because oh. I what I have to say is not the type of uh, kind of family, family friendly. <laughs> are we a family friendly podcast? I feel like we are. Yeah, for the most so, part, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think that, that the words that I have to share, y'all already know. Let's just put it that way. So, um, did you see my girl, Taylor Swift? Like, she's been turning up over the past week. Has she been turning up? Yes. Like, Taylor Swift is now my celebrity bae. And, uh, no. Mm-hmm. Like, Cancel it. Hold on. I DM'd her last night on Instagram and apologized. <laughs> <laughs> and apologized for, like, trying to justify Kanye's actions. What was that, nine years ago now? I saw a tweet and I can't remember, you know, I just scrolled through. I saw a tweet that said, um, uh, we need to start a support group for all those who picked uh, the wrong side of the Kanye West Taylor Swift debate. Facts. <laughs> I, I mean, but, hey, like, it's okay, right. So let's let's tell them exactly what happened, just in case you missed it. Um, Taylor Swift uploaded to her Instagram account that uh, she uh, could not be supporting it for, I think, Senator, uh, Senator, I think the current Senator of Tennessee, Marsha Blackburn. And that she was going to be supporting the Democratic nominees. And she kind of said that she was for LGBTQ um, rights and equality, that she uh, felt like systemic racism was, per, per what'd she say, pervasive? And that she said a bunch of other things that like kind of shocked the world because 
that just wasn't expected. She doesn't stray into politics ever. This is her first time saying anything politically about anything. And she basically encouraged voters in Tennessee to educate themselves. She just stated who she was voting for without necessarily like endorsing or or encouraging other people to vote for those people per se. She said, you need to like go out, educate yourself, register yourself to vote. And apparently in the month of October at that point, I think like 24 hours afterwards, there had been 3000, I think uh, new voter registrants. And I think like, like 2000 of those 3000 new registered voters came within 24 hours after Taylor Swift encouraging people in Tennessee to register to vote. So yes. she did she did have a huge impact. I mean, who yeah. knows which way these people are going to vote, but at least they're registered. Yeah, so she uh a couple snippets of her of her piece on Instagram. Um, she says she believes in the fight for LGBTQ rights yep. and that any form of discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender is wrong. I cannot vote for someone who will be wo- who will not be willing to fight for dignity for all Americans, no matter their skin color, gender, or who they love. As much as I have in the past and would like to continue voting for women in office, I cannot support Marsha Blackburn. And so she just goes on and on like she believes businesses Mm -hmm. have a right to refuse service to gay couples. She also believes they should not have the right to marry. This is Marsha. I will be voting for Phil Bredesen for Senate and Jim Cooper for House of Representatives. Please educate yourself on the candidates running your state and votes based on who most closely represents your values. Right. So here's the thing. Here's here's where I am. at. Okay, if you would have told me. I don't know, little me that used to ride with Monica in in the car in my senior year of high school, blasting Kanye West albums, right? That in 2018, I would be like, oh, Kanye's running around in a Make America Great Again hat. And Taylor Swift is talking about systemic racism. I don't know. I just, I would have been floored. But Mind blown. Here's, here's kind of here's my my qualm with this, and so like I'm all for like, you know, her coming out as a secret liberal after she's collected all of the Make America Great Again coins because she just finished the leg of her U.S. tour, which I think is a particular reason why she posted it now rather than earlier, because you know they they don't have nothing to boycott. What they gonna do? Break the CDs they already bought? <laughs> uh, get get rid of the the things? But when, you know, U.S. Nazis were running around touting her as, like, their America's dream girl, um, she didn't condemn them at that point. Honestly, there, there have been multiple times where I feel like it, it was kind of necessary for her to come out against, especially the extreme, like, right-wingers who were cradling her as, like, America's darling, right? Blonde hair, blue eyes, white skin, you know, all of that, right? In the same way that we ask for 45 to condemn, you know, Nazis who are in love with him. But here's here's my thing. Honestly, do I think that Taylor Swift would be saying any of this if Kanye wasn't running around with the MAGA hat on? Like, let's think about this particular positioning. Her and Kanye have been feuding for forever. They had their little fake off time where they were cool, but they really weren't cool because now she wrote a whole album about it 
Kit, her beef is also with Kim. So like, it's just really interesting to me. The more I sat there and I thought about it, I was like, it's really interesting to me that you would at this particular moment, take the time to come out as like a Democrat, quote unquote, even though she's had her own relationship with like suing and, and counter suing, I think a DJ in terms of, uh, I think sexually harassing or sexually assaulting her. I'm not, rem- I'm not remembering which one, but it's just really interesting that like, this is the particular moment that she decides to, to come out and be uh vote democratic. Yeah. So, publicly. so this is my thing. Like I don't get caught up in the whole. So for the sake of transparency, I'm the chair of the local democratic committee. Right. But I don't just ride with people because they're a Democrat or ride against people because they're a Republican. Like, and, and so with her, I mean, just the same way that we give other people the benefit of doubt and we give them grace and say, Hey, they've evolved. Like, for example, Barack Obama, like we always give him a period of grace and say, Oh, he evolved on this issue. I mean, Hey, she was young. She was probably still like, her parents probably still had a lot of influence over her um, political ideations nine years ago. And so, like, I'm, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. That's Bay. You ain't got to like it, but. No. That's Taylor Bay. Swift is a year older than I am and a year younger than you are. So let's not do her parents, blah, 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 blah. She is a, she is a grown woman. She did not turn 18 yesterday. And while people are, are allowed to evolve, I'm not saying that she hasn't evolved. I'm just saying it's very interesting that she introduces this evolution at the particular moment where Kanye West is running around with manga hats on. I, That's all I'm saying. I mean. That's all, all I'm saying. In in her defense, because you're not gonna come for Bay. In her defense, too late. I already came. In her defense, we are like two weeks removed from the voter registration deadline, and like this this is the key time. Like, if you come out too early politically, like I feel like it hurts you. Like the last thirty days or so are the most critical days for any election, especially with millennials, and so like. I commend her. Now, granted, I think we can commend people and still like know who they are. Um, yeah, I'm questioning her motivations while like giving her a high five for doing it. So, oh, so you are gonna give her a high five? Yeah, I'm saying like oh. this is. I I wasn't saying that she, it what she didn't do wasn't great. I said that you know like voter registration numbers went up. Who knows who they're voting for? But at least they're going up and people are exercising their right to vote. Um, and then she came out publicly. I'm just saying it's just. I'm questioning the motivation surrounding it. And I think, I mean, I'm not blaming her for announcing it after her U.S. tour <laughs> ended. Like, that's smart on her part. Like, collect your coin, boo-boo. I, I, but, mean, I mean, controversy I sells sometimes. I mean, controversy I, I sells. Listen, listen. I'm just going to tell you from my perspective, like. He's not a political strategist. For you to be the one, I have to follow you on Instagram. And I've been feuding with, with Taylor Swift for, like, Ever since the whole Kanye thing, um, yeah, she she weaponizes white women tears. I I'm, I still feel with her, although she do be putting out bops. Let's let's take a moment. Facts, okay. Facts. <laughs> she puts out some bops. But at any rate, how do y'all feel about Taylor Swift? Like, I'm riding with her. Danielle's like questioning her. You know, truth of the matter is, I feel like we can question everyone like about their timing. So, I mean, I'm riding with her. 
You ain't got to. I, I I'm I'm side eyeing. I mean, I'm like happy, but at the same time, I'm just like I'm I'm not throwing her a parade in the streets neither. So Danielle got her little eyebrows done. Now she wants to side eye on camera, y'all. Um, excuse me, my <laughs> eyebrows have been done. It's actually time for me to get them updated. So I'm glad they still look fabulous. But moving on. So today, not only are we recording again, as we said we would <laughs> a week later, but we're actually recording on what we said that we were going to record about. Because I think all the time we're like, oh, yeah, our next episode is going to be about blah, 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 blah. And then something happens and we don't do it. But today we're going to talk to you guys about the Central Park Five. I think it's particular. Well, we think it's particularly important to kind of dive into this, especially given um, the conversations around due process and sexual assault with so Brett Kavanaugh, even though, yeah, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Donald Trump, lots of people. Right. Um, so we do really quickly want to give a trigger warning as we did in the introduction, but just a reminder, um, the details of this, of the central park five case are going to be kind of spoken about, um, in detail. Um, if discussions of violence and or sexual assault are upsetting for you in any way, we suggest that you simply just tune into our next episode. So we started, we, as we said, we already, we were thinking about doing the Central Park Five. Um, there is a Central Park Five documentary, um, that's out that was done by Ken Burns, Sarah Burns, and David McConan. Is that how you say his name? McMahon. Mac, that's how you say that? Yes. Oh, well, there you go. And Ava DuVernay, if you follow her, um, I follow her on all forms of social media. She <laughs> has released castings for her uh, Netflix miniseries that's coming out on the Central Park Five. Um, this is going to be released in 2019. So I'm really excited about it. And it seems almost seemingly in response to... 45's consistent Twitter rants over due process um, surrounding sexual assault claims uh, that's pretty much been extending since he started, I guess, being accused, publicly accused of sexual harassment, assault during his election. So she's been pretty diligent about uh, kind of clapping back. It seems to also be kind of in response to Donald Trump's absurd commentary. Yes. So kind of the history of the case that we know as um, the Central Park Five on April 19th, 1989, around 9 p.m., uh, there were a group of over 30 teenagers committing several acts, um, several attacks, assaults, robberies in the northernmost part of Manhattan Central Park. At the time, this was called Wilden. Um, mm -hmm. And so... The New York Times said that these attacks that night were one of the most widely publicized, um, some of the most widely publicized crimes of the 80s. Yeah, so uh, these teenagers, so there's 30 of them, mind you, roughly, that's the estimate. They attacked like um, bicyclists, attacked people out for runs, 
her, were hurling rocks at, at different cars. Some of the people that were out on runs or uh, bicyclists were severely beaten and actually left unconscious. And so, like, to the point where someone was reported, you know, a man who had been jumped was beating so badly that he looked like he had been dunked into, like, a bucket of blood. So there were a group, a large group of teenagers kind of committing a, a lot of, like, crimes um, across the the northern part of, of Central Park on that night. So here's where we get into the actual details of what the Central Park Five were involved in. So just before 9 p.m., a 28-year-old white woman was um, on a run in her usual path on Central Park. And she was knocked down Chase, well, she was chased nearly 300 feet, knocked down, um, dragged, and violently assaulted. And she was stabbed five times, raped, sodomized, and beaten within, like, seconds of her life. Absolutely. And around 9.30, sorry, around 1.30 a.m., she was found naked, gagged, tied up, and covered in mud and blood. And uh, subsequently, after she was sent to the hospital, she was comatose for 12 days. Yeah, she su suffered all sorts of things from hypothermia, hemorrhage shock. Um, she lost roughly 80% of her blood from deep stab wounds, internal bleeding. She suffered from severe brain damage. Fractured her skull. Absolutely. Her left eye was dislodged from its socket. Um, her face was fractured in 21 places. Um, and immediately after, because of the severity of the attack, she had no memory of the attack or any of the events an hour before the assault. And actually up to six weeks following the assault, she's had no, she was not able to maintain memory um, about anything that happened after she became conscious. Um, and eventually, which she, is like a blessing, right? Yeah. I mean, it sucks that I, I hate to call anything in this context a yeah. blessing, but at least she has no, no memory of what actually happened. Um, yeah. which I mean, at the same time could be terrible, right? You know, yeah, waking I, up, not understanding what's going on with you. Yeah. Um, having flashbacks but you're not really quite sure about what you know it's 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 kind of weird but yeah. she did largely recover yeah it was it was quite it was a quite traumatic experience it rocked the nation it rocked the nation because like you have to put this in perspective this is 1989 right and so something that's important um she remained anonymous for until like 2003 was it 2003 I'm not quite sure of the year, but it was in the 2000s. Yeah. No one yeah. had any idea who she was. And then she released a book. I'm the Central Park jogger. And uh, her name was her name is Trisha Maley. Um, mm -hmm. But before we get there, like. I think it's important because on the night of the attack, five juvenile males, four black and one of Hispanic Latinx descent were apprehended in connection with the number of the attacks in the Central Park that we previously like discussed them wild and out that were committed by 30 teenagers. Their names were Raymond Santana, Kevin Richardson, Antron McCray, Yusuf Salam and Corey wise. And they were all age uh, 14 and 16. Yeah. So they were all teenagers, but essentially children. 
right? Um, so when they were apprehended, all five of them actually confessed to participating with a number of the attacks that um, had to do with the the thirty teenagers while in. And while those they were, you know, committing crimes at the time, they weren't raping women and brutally yeah. beating them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, should they possibly be, been in? Well, should they have been in trouble if they participated in like beat severely beating people? Absolutely. Um, but it wasn't necessarily their, their confessions originally had nothing to do with the particular jogger, right? Um, so we're not saying that they, you know, they were completely innocent of any crime that happened in Central Park. Um, it seems that they immediately confessed to to some of those things, but they basically, and then not only did they confess, they also like kind of implicated one or more of the others that that were questioned. However, when they were questioned about the jogger, right, and this confessions, these confessions that they were made were made, I believe, in the police precinct. Um, under enormous pressure, right? So the the police officers, I think the the tapes are released. Yes, um, I'm not sure if you can find them on YouTube or something, but they're definitely in the Central I, Park Five. I, I mean, some some of them are in that yeah that documentary, the Burns documentary. Yes, yeah, but they're super super pressured. And honestly, like we're gonna go into like confessions in a minute, but like the way that they were questioned about the jogger also could possibly implicate that the confessions that they made about the previous attacks might be called into question as well, right? So, but essentially they were pressured, but none of the five said that they actually raped the jogger. Um, and they- uh, they, they, were interrogated each, with, they were interrogated without- For an hours. Without an attorney and without uh, parental consent. Right. Yeah, their parents weren't there. And I, I think one of them, I guess, revoked his right to have a parent because he was 16, I guess. he Or he was 16, so he didn't require one. I don't know. New York law is kind of strange, kind of fuzzy. But they each did confess to being an accomplice of the rape, either verbally, either by writing it down, or on videotape. Right? So they were inconsistent, their confessions. They had been. They were confessing to things that weren't even a part of the rape. They were just trying to confess, right? In general, so they were like their details. They were erroneous and not um, in a line with what actually happened to the Central Park log, um, um, jogger. And they were basically like spun, like brought out uh, after hours of police interrogations, right? Hours. So. The other interesting part of this is, was it the next day Donald Trump, uh, it was a couple days later, I believe. Yeah, it was a couple days. Yeah. Donald Trump uh, paid for a full page ad entitled with the headline, bring back the death penalty, bring back our police. Because this ad cost $85,000. In 1989. Yeah, eighty-five thousand. And so, to give you some context, the death penalty had been prohibited in New York in 1963. So they had gone 26 years without the death penalty. But Donald Trump thought that it was important to bring it back at this time. This is before um, any investigation, anything. It was just like bring back the death penalty. Like, where was the presumption of innocence? Where was the rule of law um, with this? And so, like, we have a trend of this in America, right? If we look mm -hmm. at 
Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, if we look at uh, Rosewood, Emmett Till, I mean, the list goes as long as this country has existed. But all these are examples of domestic terrorism that were exacerbated by an allegation of a black man falsely being falsely accused of raping a white woman or being, quote unquote, too fresh. Right. So I don't know, like, so continuing on with like what what happened. So essentially he refers to them as muggers. And I'm talking about he as in Donald Trump, muggers, murderers. Um, And then I quote. Muggers and murderers should be forced to suffer, and when they kill, they should be executed for their crimes, end quote. So even though he didn't, like, refer to these teenagers by name, it was very clear, given, like, the way that this swept the nation, he had these full-page ads placed in all of the four daily newspapers in New York City. So it was very clear who he was referring to. Right, and then he also said in the ad, and I quote, How can our great society tolerate the continued brutalization of its citizens by crazed misfits? Criminals must be told that their civil liberties end when an attack on our safety begins. End quote. Like, misfits? Like, these aren't even dog whistles. Like, I mean, he's howling. Absolutely. So what? Okay. So you're asking, obviously, what happened if you haven't heard of it. I'm going to presume that not everybody knows all the details, but the defendants, the the four children, um, black and brown children were tried for assault, robbery, riot, rape, so- sexual abuse and attempted murder. So they, these are like all of these charges plus other acts that were committed in the park. Right. So DNA tests excluded them as the source of the rape, right? But they were still convicted in 1990 by juries based off of their confessions. Confessions, which after they were taken and the boys realized that they were not going to be released back into their parents or back home, they they all immediately recanted and claimed that they were false. So let's just take a moment and talk about false confessions because this is something that I really didn't know a whole lot about um, until I started my program. And I know false confessions occur. That's why we, you know, we're trying to move away. We should be moving away from um, torture as a way to get people to come. People will confess to anything if they feel like it's going to get them out of trouble or it's going to stop like whatever um, trauma they're being put through or abuse that they're being put through. So I took a, a class last what was it, winter quarter um, with Dr. John Rickford. Um, he's a world-renowned linguist. And it's his, uh, he had an applied sociolinguistics class. So he was talking about like language and how it affects education and, and law. And so we have Janet Answorth from the University of Seattle Law, Professor Janet Answorth, and she came and visited our class because we were talking about language in the context of the law, right? Right. And so she is a part of the National Exoneration Registry from the University of Michigan, which has recorded over 2,000 plus cases of false convictions, right? And so, like, trying to figure out what is happening, why are people being falsely accused so we can stop falsely accusing and, like, convict falsely, can, convicting people under false pretenses, right? Um, 20% of those 2,000-plus cases occurred because of false confessions. 
because of com- people confessing to things that they did not do, right? And so what we learned in that class is that uh, Saul Kaysen, a leading psychologist in false confessions, basically determined that 70% of all false confessions, okay, so 70% of that 20% are from one of three different vulnerable populations, people who are intellectually disabled, people who are mentally ill, and children, right? And so Professor Ainsworth was coming to our class because she's talking about working to have women who are the victims of domestic violence included as a fourth vulnerable population because they also make false confessions at high rates. And and eyewitness testimony is not reliable with domestic violence and sexual assault cases oftentimes. Right. So what she's saying is like police interrogations, the way that they are carried out are actually replicable of the abuse that they they receive at home, which can lead to false confessions, at least verbally. They're replicable. Yeah, because and I, I do want to clear that up, not saying that we don't believe people when they say it. But a lot of times, <laughs> if you don't know your assailant, like one of those books was Picking Cotton by Ronald Cotton um, mm-hmm. and the victim like. She didn't identify him initially, but the police, like, they basically prompted her to say, oh, yeah, this is your assailant, isn't it? Like, he fits the description. And she eventually, like, I, I forget the the psychological name, but it basically says, like, once someone, um, like, tells you, basically, that this is the person, you basically trick your mind. Like, they say, oh, yeah. If, like, for example, if, if someone says, my... Uh, attacker had a mole beside their mouth mm-hmm. and so like you show them a um a lineup and the person like no one in the lineup has a mole then they say oh man and like police are pointing them out they're like oh yeah this person looks like this um like they fit the description and then you say oh maybe they didn't actually have a mole you misremember yes essentially yeah so professor ainsworth so she's looking at into domestic violence as like that uh, that that fourth category of like potentially um, vulnerable population to making false confessions. Um, she's been looking at false confessions since 1997 and kind of like in detail, like it wasn't until 1936 where we had Brown versus Mississippi that essentially made force um, forcing confessions through physical violence and interrogations illegal. Right. Because it basically came out that people will uh, confess to anything to make the pain stop. Right. Right. So um, this this has created this misnomer. Right. If you're not using physical violence, the people aren't going to confess to things that they haven't done. But in particular communities, particularly black and brown communities or with people who are mentally ill, intellectually disabled, particularly children. Right. Black and brown children who have misgivings about the nature of police, who've seen police violence, right, know that they are capable of enacting violence and know that oftentimes police are unable of enacting violence with no consequence to the police, right? So police, what she studies is how police linguistically signal imagery of violence in ways that make you feel like it doesn't matter if I'm enacting it on you. Just the thought, the notion that you can be violent towards me and nothing will happen to you can lead me down the path of of confessing to something that I've never done. Right. Right. And so there are a lot of organizations, particularly the Innocent Pro- Innocence Project in Chicago, that are working on how do we 
you know, we want people to have confessions and make and admit to things that they've done wrong. But how can we look at the ways that we are interrogating police are interrogating certain populations so that they are not at risk of enacting a false confession as what would happen in the Central Park Five case? Because DNA exonerated all of them. Yes. Right. But, but, and they all but, immediately recanted. But they received sentences ranging from five to 15 years. And so I don't know how much you all know about like prison culture, but you don't want to go to prison with like a sex crime. Absolutely not. Yeah. Like, I mean, no one wants to go to prison period, but it's like a hierarchy in prison. Like you don't want to be a sex offender in prison. Yeah. Or mess with children. Right. And so, uh, these five, young men spent between six and 13 years in prison. And so in 2002 convicted serial rapist and murderer, Matthias Reyes confessed that he had assaulted and raped the, the jogger. Essentially um, that he had done it. Yes. And so it was really interesting how, how it happened because he met one of the central park five in prison. Absolutely. And like he said, yeah, you're here for a crime that I did. And like that really kind of started getting the ball rolling. So he provided a detailed yeah. ac account of the attack, details of which were corroborated by DNA, which confirmed his participation in the rape. He was not prosecuted because of the statutes of limitations had had expired, had passed. So even though his admission of guilt, even though he admitted that he was guilty, um, he wasn't at risk of like a longer sentence or anything else, which is why it was probably very easy for him to come out and say, oh, yeah, that was me um, in ways that he hadn't done before. But, yeah, he, he essentially was like, yeah, that was me. And I acted completely alone, had nothing to do with any of them. And then DNA, like you said, basically was like, yep, that was him. Right. And so the Central Park Five, their sentences uh, were vacated, which is interesting because some of them had already come home. Like they had completed yeah. their sentence already. And a settlement for the case of $41 million, which was supported by then Mayor Bill de Blasio, was approved in 2000. Yeah, was approved in 2014. So Santana, Salam, McCray, and Richardson received $7.1 million from the city and Wiles received $12.2 So essentially they got about $1 million a year per year that they were imprisoned, right? But what's really interesting about this settlement is that the city in the settlement still does not admit to any wrongdoing in the settlement. And then not only that, after Reyes came out and basically was like, I did it. I acted alone um, and, and provided, you know, it, details that were in line with the act, like the actual crime committed and DNA corroborated that he was the person who raped um, the, the jogger that the, the original prosecution put up a fierce opposition they were not willing to admit that they had possibly put five five young men who are now adults in prison for the pretty much like their all of their 20s into their 30s yeah and so the jogger trisha uh Melly, she Thank said you, um when that lawsuit was settled 
it gave some of the impression that the detectives and the prosecutors had acted improperly. And, uh, and I'd like to see it be acknowledged that there wasn't a violation of the teen civil rights. Which is <laughs> mind blowing, right? Yeah. So like, so the jogger didn't feel like the teen civil rights had been, um, had been infringed on in yeah. any way. Yeah. It, Even though, like I said, there's a there's DNA corroboration, and not only that, when they admitted, quote unquote, when they confessed, their details about what actually happened to the jogger, what was actually done to the jogger, were all wrong. Yeah, they were it, just making up things so they could go home. Yeah, because they were kids, and so then she said, "Oh, um," and so she's concluded that the police and assistant prosecutors fought the good fight and are innocent of any accusations that they railroaded uh, black and Latino teens. This is, I just, <laughs> I just like, I have flashbacks of all of the people in the world. Like no one is saying that she doesn't deserve justice for what was done to her. What was done to her was absolutely abhorrent, right? right. It should happen to no one. Right. Right. But in, in the case that it's very clear that the people that were punished for the crime that was committed against you, the atrocity, the horrible atrocity that was committed against you. The fact that you still feel like those are the people who did it despite other evidence and then are you, you're willing to use your privilege as the victim to continue to perpetuate this narrative that they are the ones that did it to you when you have no recorded memory of anything that happened and all of the evidence, and I'm talking physical evidence, I'm not talking hearsay, states to the otherwise. Right. And so she said that she felt like the settlement was just a campaign promise from deal uh, from then candidate Bill de Blasio. And that was his way of like securing basically the black and brown vote in New York because he promised that he would get to the end of this. Right. He would get to the bottom of it. Well, it, speaking of candidacy. Right. So. Let's let's go back to like like let's return back to 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 Trump, right? Because that's his narrative. That's what's bringing up these documentary series and really this conversation. He said October 7th, 2016, and I quote, they admitted they were guilty, talking about the Central Park 5. Um they admitted they were guilty. The police doing the original investigation say they were guilty. The fact that the case was settled with so much evidence against them is outrageous. And the woman so badly injured will never be the same, end quote. No, she will never be the same, right? So much evidence against them is out. He said this in 2016. Yeah. And, and, and then so, has the audacity. To add some context, this is the same week that the, what's name, Billy Bush tape came out when he said, grab the woman by the genitalia. Mm -hmm. um th this is the same week so like we are a, a, a month away from the election of 2016 and this is what he's saying like the law and order candidate i roll that <laughs> was once again i mean it's, n it's not a dog whistle and i mean trump also said someplace that this was like the greatest the largest heist in american history is how he referred to the settlement 
it's just disgusting. And then he has the, like I was going to say, he has the audacity to talk about, you know, this is a really, you know, uh, dangerous time for the young men of this country in reference to, you know, sexual assault claims and the Me Too movement. Like you have the audacity after it calling for the death penalty for children, for children. Yes. And so they, what? You know, that's very, it's very interesting on so many levels, right? Because one of the things that we hear um, preachers say a lot when they go visit Trump is he's doing more for criminal justice reform than any other president has ever done. And you saw what he did for that lady. Um, Her name evades me that Kim Kardashian was advocating for and he got her released and like he's doing, he's fighting a good fight and. I just have to ignore his tweets because he's doing the work. And so, and then Trump had like this big talking session in the white house a few months ago about criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. And people are like, Oh, we've never had anything like a convening like this before. And you know, for me, it's just kind of like you talk about criminal justice reform, but like, how can you separate the message from the messenger, right? You can't. And and it seems like we just, people try to find innovative ways to do that with Trump. And the truth of the matter is, this isn't limited to Donald J. Trump, right? But it's I not. But the this presumption of innocence until proven guilty in this country, like, that's a farce if you're poor, if you're black, if you're brown, mm-hmm. you know, like the truth of the matter is that's what it comes down to with a lot of these police shootings. And like, I don't mean to get on my Bill Cosby soapbox, but in his pound cake speech, that was one of the things he said. Well, if you stole and the police shot you in the head, like, why did you steal the pound cake? Like, that's not just cause to kill the someone. Thing. But I mean, that's y'all hero. That's y'all hero. Um, you know. <laughs> Stop aggravating our fans. Nah, I, 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 mean, no, no, I mean, no, we, like we need to call people out. You know, I was in the barbershop last week and this preacher was in there saying, oh, man, they trying to keep a good brother down. Bill didn't do that. And, and then he I had cannot. the he had the audacity to say, oh, man, everybody was doing it in that era. That was so free. Everybody love. was a rapist. And so I was like, Is I said, I, so, you know, me like. I'm addressing negative behavior. So I'm like, so you're saying that you were a rapist in the seventies? No, I mean, I mean, that's the question. I mean, I was just free love, you know, like, and so then he tried to go off on this tangent about contact highs and he was no. smoking in the bathroom with some women. And no. I was, and I was like, Sir. like contact highs and consensual sex is completely different than like taking it, like mm-hmm. drugging women and taking it, which, Rape. You know, um, while some folks in the, in the institution of the United States Senate tried to, like, draw some lines between Brett Kavanaugh and Bill Cosby, but they the same. Yeah, no, I just. At this point, I, I just find it. I can't take anything. And I, I don't want to say at this point because I haven't been able to take it seriously for a long time. Like these calls for law and order are for particular people, right? There there are calls for laws to protect particular portions of our population, just like you said. And so like, 
people who are I, I just I like I'm literally at loss for words like I can't even express what I'm trying to say and I'm supposed to be a good talker because I'm on, <laughs> I'm, I'm on a podcast but so, me, so, so just, last week she was on the podcast because she likes to hear herself talk this week she's on the podcast because she's a good talker I'm just I'm I Car- am, I, Car- Carry on, carry on. Look at you, Shade. Uh, Anyway, I just feel like at this point in time, the fact that people are are unwilling, meaning like they can see it, but they are unwilling to see how the policies and the rhetoric of the United States government are protecting only certain populations of the, this country and like that it's functioning exactly how it's supposed to, because that's how this country was built is beyond me. Like you, you have you, this it's willful ignorance at this point. That's all I'm saying. I mean, Dr. King said the two most (laughs) dangerous things in America are, um, conscientious stupidity and willful ignorance and And i feel like there's a whole lot of that going around all facts so this is one another one of those lessons in like um podcasts that i don't think we really have a solution for like i mean i'm all about doing more than talking but this is something that i feel like we just got to make people more conscientious. If they make the decision to uh, ignore it, that's on them. But like, I don't think we have a solution right now for willful ignorance in America. Like, <laughs> in this context, like th- there are people who are, who, who are doing the work. I'm not quite sure what we can do at home. Maybe we'll, we'll follow up with what we can do at home. But like you have Ava DuVernay who is putting out this, what I'm sure is going to be a beautiful um, documented series that's going to come out on Netflix that will be accessible to millions of people, right? Then you have um, White House reporters like Aisha Roscoe, who asked Sanders about Trump's selective advocacy, essentially, for due process, where basically, which he apprised li- like to white men and then consistently treats men of color as criminals. So she asked her during like, you know, the, the white house, like it was like, you know, how she comes out and she corresponds because she's the director of communications and she essentially dodges the question. So Roscoe asks her and I quote, is there a disconnect between when the president is interested in due process for some, but not for others, right? Sanders in quote, Sanders dodges the question and then the veteran White House correspondent, April Ryan, does not let her move on from the question. And basically, and follows up on Roscoe's question and said, he essentially said the Central Park Five was guilty. Does he feel that now? Right. Right. And so, like, holding these people's feet to the fire in places where we can is what's important. Encouraging people to continue hold people's feet to the fire is what's important. And so... I don't know. We're as far as like what we can do at home. That's some that's some research that we're gonna have to do on our part. Absolutely. So, did we eat today? I think we can do better on solutions, but yeah, I think I think we did. I think this is there was just so much until we started really like diving into and delving into this. I mean, I knew about the Central Park Five. I knew a lot of the details about the Central Park Five. I did not know. It was it was what it was. Right. 
at this at this level. Yeah. So yeah, I think we ate. Do you feel like we ate? Yeah, you know, I think we had that nice little lunch special today. <laughs> I think we had that nice lunch special. Hey, but uh thank you all for listening. Here we are putting our words into action with our consistency. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully we continue to be consistent and we'll record exactly one week from now. Yeah. Uh but yeah, we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Take care. <laughs>